Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. That's not yet where the church is at, but that persecution is mounting. It's building. Um, it's growing. It's, it's, it, they're, they're experiencing uh, uh, verbalized hostility, if you were. It's a group of people living in the midst of, of this tension. There we go. And that's why, um, that's why Peter, a couple different times throughout this epistle, makes sure and calls the church foreigners, um, exiles. And I know uh, Reed touched on this last week. Um, but I want to go back and just re-emphasize this. Two different times, at least he does this. The first is in uh, chapter 1, where he says that um, uh, to, to calls the church to live out their time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In chapter 2, he says that they're temporary residents or foreigners. Um, this is an important mentality for the early church living in a culture filled with tension. All right? They were not to see themselves as permanent residents in this world, in this culture. They were to see themselves as just passing through. In fact, the Greek term that he uses, which I'm not going to pronounce for you because I can't, um, it's used in like the first century to designate someone who did not hold citizenship in that place where they resided and was therefore viewed as a foreigner. So this is the mentality that the early church is supposed to have, and this is the mentality that Peter is affirming for his early church. Um, He's seeing them as foreigners who are not necessarily expected to hold the values and customs of the culture that they resided in, but rather their place of origin. That was what was important to the early church as Peter shepherded this early church. Now, this is really important because Peter is essentially saying, you need to live in this culture as being people in between. You're not to fully assimilate into this culture. You're intended to be distinct, but at the same time, you're rooted here on this side of eternity in this world. So this, there's dissonance here. The church is living between two worlds. It's like any immigrant perhaps would feel in our own culture. You know, removed from their, from their place of origin, living in this culture, not feeling like they have all the rights and privileges of this culture, not wanting to fully assimilate into the culture here, but maintaining the culture uh, in their identity uh, of origin. So... The church is in this, this, this weird kind of in-between spot. Now, uh, specifically, I want to show you kind of what they were dealing with. Uh, they were dealing with the new ethic that they heard uh, from Jesus, this new way. Remember, when they heard the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, this was like a radical new way. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the, the, the heavens coming and intersecting with earth um, through the work and personage of Jesus. So they're living out their... Um, their uh, submission to King Jesus as he is the authority, but also this new way. Now, the culture around them was living very differently. Uh, they were not submitted to this man from Nazareth that was crucified uh, on Good Friday, and uh, the stories went on that he resurrected from the grave at all. They were uh, subscribing to a civic religion, primarily that of Rome. So you had a, a, a whole bunch of people that referred to Caesar as the son of God. Um, much like the early church referred to Jesus as the Son of God, they would use similar language. And the ethics that the culture subscribed to were very, very different from the early church. You had things like the illusion of Pax Romana, which is this idea of, of peace kind of uh, permeating the uh, civilized world through Rome, which was just a, a misnomer because their peace came through coercion, violence, and subjugation. You had the idea of 
paterfamilias, which is this idea of a patriarchy that was established through the, the male head. Um, it, it, it suppressed female voices. Um, you had a, a culture of excess. And so here the early church is living in between, right, this place of tension. You have, you have submission to King Jesus and his new ethic, which is very different. And then you have the, the ethics of culture and you have the uh, submission to Caesar. Now, this should ring true for you and I. This should not just be an experience of the first century church. Uh, certainly it is, but it should also speak to our experience today. We are foreigners. We are exiles. We are pilgrims in the in-between. Put uh, simply, we are people not of this world. Uh, that's how the early church was supposed to live, and that's how we're supposed to live in this world, understanding our identity as not part of this world. We are a people, as the church, of a different country, living as foreigners in a foreign land, maintaining our identity of origin. And so if you are pursuing the way of Jesus, this, this tension will ring true in your life today. There's no doubt about it. Listen, the early church, if we just consider them for a moment, uh, they didn't um, find themselves just gravitating towards, like, pastoral teaching, strategic apostolic leadership, um, and excellence in, in events or programming. Instead, what galvanized the early church, what made the early church irresistible in many ways was the quality of the believers' shared life that was established on the ethics of Jesus. So the early church shared values that the world had never seen before. Consider some of these things. They were people of a diverse culture, race, and age, breaking bread with gratitude. They were bearing burdens and speaking encouragement, freely sharing resources and privilege. And they were filled with a general sense of wonder and awe that cut past every trace of cynicism in their culture. Essentially, they were a community carrying the values of another world. And that is true of you today. As you press into difficult conversations around racial reconciliation, as you carry heart, a heartbeat for the marginalized, for the downtrodden, for uh, the quartet of the vulnerable, as you live in a generous, uh, a generous spirit, like you are carrying values uh, from a different world. And there's going to be dissonance there for you as you live in this culture of tension. You guys tracking with me? All right, cool. I want to make, make sure I didn't leave you behind yet. All right? And just to even further paint this picture, I, I think that there's striking similarities to where we find ourselves in this culture today. Just as the early church was stuck between submission to Jesus and the, uh, the culture's uh, submission to Caesar, uh, the ethics of Jesus and the, the ethics of, 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 of the Greco-Roman Empire, we find ourselves in a very, very, very similar place. We find ourselves in a, uh, in a, in a world that is grabbing gravitating, even in the church, towards empire, towards civic religion. Listen, this is not a political statement. This is not a left or right statement. I don't mean to offend anybody by this, but listen, when you have the government this last week standing up and using Romans 13 to justify some of their actions towards immigrants in our culture, you're seeing a picture of decades-long um, integration with the church and with the empire. You're just seeing that. This is an example of that. And we have, uh, what happens in that kind of scenario is that the, the unbelieving world looks on with a great deal of skepticism, a great deal of 
uh, uh, apprehension even because they're, they're seeing before their eyes uh, um, policies put in action that don't reflect at all what they hear about the way of Jesus. So there's dissonance there. Consider the ethos of our culture. I'm just going to name a few of them. We have like autonomous individualism that's rampant in our culture. We have greed that's rampant in our culture. We have uh, culturally defined sexual ethics. We have uh, a, a cynical um, posture about everything that's rampant in our culture. Uh, we have complicit passivity towards injustice, right, that just exists in the ethos of our culture. And we, as a people of Jesus, are trying to live very intentionally in, in a counter way according to those ethos. Instead of autonomous individualism, we're trying to live in community and mutual submission. Instead of greed, we're trying to live out the spirit of generosity. Instead of a culturally defined sexual ethic, we're trying to live out a way of purity in this culture. Instead of cynicism, we're talking about compassion and empathy. Uh, instead of being complicit towards injustice, we're trying to have hard conversations. We're trying to uh, openly repent of our, uh, our behavior in any way that would work against gender inequality or racism with the quartet of the vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm trying to paint a picture for you is simply this, that this is Christianity like springing up in secular soil, all right? And this is a tension that you will feel. Now, the result of that tension is something that I think you and I feel all the time, but we rarely name. And that is like just a, a, a sense of fatigue in our culture. Um, for those of us that are really trying to live out the way of Jesus, it's almost inevitable that fatigue will set in just because you're constantly being grinded down by the ethos of culture around you. It's just a war of attrition. And don't get me wrong, I know that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that the good news is actually good news. I know that God is among us. I know that there's something here that is real and, and, and there's a vitality and a strength that we experience. I get all that, but at the same time, we are not yet in the full consummation of the kingdom of God. We're not yet on the other side of eternity where uh, every tear will be wiped away from our eye and the perfect shalom of God will rule and reign. We're stuck in this dissonance, and fatigue will set in. I just read an article last week on the on New York Times about what's called compassion fatigue, uh, where, like, you, you, you give of yourself and your heart and your advocacy and, and all these different things to different uh, and needs, and, and it's really interesting. We live in a world of globalization, so um, every uh, major um, uh, event that's traumatic is right on, the, on, on, on like the forefront of our news feeds. So we're feeling shootings in Paris. We're, we're feeling tsunamis in Asia, and you go on down the list. And there's something about a Christian caring empathetically about all those things, but like fatigue will set in. There's no doubt about it, and, and fatigue is not a bad thing at all, but it needs to be addressed because fatigue unaddressed will lead to discouragement, and discouragement unaddressed will sometimes lead to cynicism, and that's what happens within the church when people get really cynical. Typically, it's on this kind of trajectory of, of, of fatigue that kind of grew into discouragement that ultimately landed in cynicism. So how do we live as a people going against the grain? How do we live as a people that... Uh, are from a different world, but still here very much inundated in the ethos of our culture. Peter gives us this like phenomenal exhortation right off the pages of 1 Peter 1. And he says this in, in um, 1 Peter uh, verse 3, 
All praise to God, the Father of Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says this, now live with great expectation. So in the midst of all this dissonance, in the midst of attrition, in the midst of going against the grain and battling fatigue and all of that stuff, what's, what's Peter's message? Ah, you get to live with great expectation. Listen to that language. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, some of your translations, if you're using a different translation than mine, might say like a living hope. This is like a living, breathing hope for you. It's something that's stirring in your heart that, that will keep propelling you forward. And that's why he gives praise to God in verse 3. Oh, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His heart is being overwhelmed with gratitude because he says in the midst of this distance, there's, there can be a people going against the grain but clinging to hope, and this, this hope stirs up in their heart. This hope, like, catapults them forward uh, to continue to persevere and to go the way of faithfulness. That's a beautiful thing. Now, Brian only asked me to share um, uh, through verse 9, but I'm totally ignoring uh, what he asked me to do. I'm stealing somebody's thunder from next week. I don't know who. But who, who am I? I'm sorry. If I would have known it was you, if one of these two guys, I would have done it. But you, I, I truly do apologize. Um, but this is the deal. In verse 10, like, he, he starts talking about the nature of the gospel in verse 10 and, and what this hope is, like, founded upon. He says this, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this grace, gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory. Afterward, they were told that their message, um, messages were not for themselves but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preach in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is uh, all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. See, what he's talking about here is that this, this hope that like, stirs our hearts with great expectations, he's speaking to his context, a primarily Jewish context, who, who would remember the story of the prophets, would remember the story of Israel, would remember how this is the long-awaited good news that has finally arrived in Christ Jesus. When he talks about the prophets, he's not just naming random people off the pages of an Old Testament scripture. These were people that lived and breathed and announced, foretold of this event to come that would be the incarnation of God himself, where God would come and God would pave a way through the life-giving body of Jesus Christ so that people might be saved, so that the world might be set right. And so he's, he's anchoring them back in the story of Israel. He's anchoring them back in the message of, of the prophets. And then he says, like, this is the good news that's been proclaimed. That's a really important word. It's just the evangelion, which is this word that the New Testament authors talked about with the gospel being heralded. And not just spoken out loud, but heralded with conviction, heralded with power and authority. When the good news is proclaimed, lives are transformed, he says. When the good news of Jesus, the, in Jesus, God has set everything right in the world. All of the cosmos are being healed in the body of Jesus. When this good news is being proclaimed, it comes with it power and authority, lives are transformed, and this is the great expectation, this is the great hope that we live in. 
And I love this last bit, right, this part about angels. It's as if Peter is saying, and you don't understand, like, the angels are watching this all unfold, and they're dumbfounded by the extraordinary wisdom of God. They're looking in <clears throat> on the God of the universe whom they have seen in, in the throne. I don't know. Do they see him in the throne room? I guess they do. I don't Experience his presence in the throne room, right? And, like, they're looking at this God become man in human flesh and pour out his life for the, for the healing of the cosmos. And the angels are like, what's happening here? What in the world happened? This is the great expectation. This is the great hope. So if you're feeling fatigue this morning, compassion fatigue, empathy fatigue, fatigue of just being in dissonance with culture around you, the message is be rooted back in the story of God that, is, that has come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Now he goes on and he talks about just how, what a cool thing this is. I'm going to probably skip a few little quotes that I have about hope. I got a good one from Andy Dufresne of Shawshank Redemption people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Do you guys know Shawshank Redemption? I feel like it's, I'm too old now. Like, do millennials know Shawshank Redemption? Because you need to, all right? It's a phenomenal short story by Stephen King, right? Um, anyways, he, 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 he characterizes this, this, this hope. Look what he says in the text. He says that this hope uh, of our inheritance is, is, number one, kept in heaven. The reason why that's important is because he goes on to say that it's undefiled and uncorrupted. It's impossible for this hope to be corrupted because it's, 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 uh, its very nature is from heaven itself. And then he goes on to say that it's actually even protected by God. What? This, this great expectation is protected by God, and it's kept for uh, uh, this inheritance that we have. So God is in the midst of this. He's holding it in his hands. He's making sure that it's undefiled, uncorrupted. He's protecting it for you so that you can live in a culture of dissonance. You can live in a culture of attrition as a Christian and be filled today with the hope of God. It's a pretty cool promise. And then he says this, right? This is cool. He says that this hope produces ultimately the results of this hope, stirring in the hearts of the people that are living in tension, is that they will be a community characterized by joy. He says that be glad because there is a wonderful joy ahead. This is just not like us to talk about, like use this language at all. Usually when we're encouraging one another, when like we're filled like with kind of fatigue being a Christian in this culture, it's like, oh, don't, don't worry, we, we'll get through it together, man. We'll see better days. Rarely do you hear somebody saying like, no, just listen to this. There's wonderful joy ahead. There are very few of us that are fountains of joy for others to come and drink from. But God so desires that we be so fixated on this hope that is you know, like uncorrupted and undefiled in Christ Jesus and kept by the power of God that this space would be filled with, like, overflowing joy. And when you're fatigued, and when you're hungry, and when you're tired, and when you're thirsty as a Christian, you come to this fount and you drink because there is a wonderful joy of, ahead. Heaven's joy is being experienced now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he says, rejoice, right, with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Does that mark our lives as, as Christians or maybe just fatigue? more express who we are. Now, all of this, and this is really cool too, all of this, Peter says, is brought to you by the resurrection. He says from the, out of, right out of the gate, right? Verse, uh, verse three, all praise to God, the Father of all Lord Jesus Christ, by his great mercy that we have been born again. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. 
So not only does he talk about like the prophets and the story of God being unfolded for the nation of Israel coming to fruition and fullness in Christ Jesus, but he makes sure and hammers home the fact that all of this is a realization because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. What was accomplished in the resurrection? Uh, number one, there is the defeat of death. In Christ, death is slowly suffocated. Number two, he secured our future um, as the saved people of God. He's going to later talk about how we are a redeemed people. We're a new nation, a royal priesthood, he calls us. That is our identity. We can only have that identity through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the resurrection paves a way for the Spirit of God to come upon his people. The power of the Spirit upon his people through the resurrection. And this is the only way to love and to live and to flourish as a community of hope in a culture dominated by despair, in a culture dominated by cynicism. It's the place to be where we are filled with the Holy Spirit of hope. If we get this resurrection mentality, if we understand this hope, this joy that is ours in Christ Jesus, I guarantee you, folks, you will have the ability to persevere through fatigue. You will be able to run the race with hupomone, which is a Greek word which means endurance, a stick to where you keep your eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith, where it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame and is even now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the hope that challenges and shapes our current perspectives because we have been changed. Our identity is fundamentally different and our experience, folks, is fundamentally different. So, this morning, that's all I have for you. I want, you to, want to leave you just with this question. Does God want this morning to move you from discouragement into joy? Does God want to move you from fatigue into drinking from the fount of God to experience his fullness? Does God want to move you into a space of hope and joy? I'm going to answer that question for you. The answer is yes. The heart of God is for you this morning. His face is shining upon you. There's nothing that he wants more. Now, the scriptures say this. In his presence is fullness of joy. What a beautiful promise. Scriptures also say that where two or three are gathered in his his name, that he is there in the midst. The scriptures also say that he inhabits the praises of his people. So as we have praised God together, we know that God is residing here in a particular way where he manifests himself to us uniquely. When we gather in the name of Jesus, as we have, we know that he is particularly here in a unique way where his presence is manifested to us uniquely. And if those two things are true, which I believe that they are, we know that the holy God is among us now. This is sacred ground. We are breathing in and out his presence. We are being transformed from one degree to another as we behold him, as we see him as he is. That's sacred ground. So I would encourage you this morning to come to this space as we respond to him to come face to face with the living God who loves you, who cherishes you, who is for you and wants to fill you with his presence so that you might experience his joy. And maybe we would leave this place as a people that came in a bit discouraged or downtrodden or just a little weary. Maybe we would leave this place fundamentally different because of the power of the Holy Spirit 
and we would be founts of joy for our culture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your beauty this morning. We ask now that you would disrupt us if need be, that you would shake us from our places of, of despondency or, or uh, routine. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, for you to fall upon us. We know that you don't need our invitation, God. We know that you are here among us, but we invite you regardless because we want to declare our posture before you. We want to declare our need for you. We want to declare that we are nothing apart from you. So God, I just pray that you'd stir up hope, stir up passion, stir up love, stir up joy in this space this morning. Leave no stone unturned in the corner of our hearts. Show us your glory, God. Show us your glory this morning. Heal our hearts. Give us endurance. Give us strength. Give us joy. I pray for anybody in just that may not even have known that they were fatigued until they came in this room and they heard it articulated for them. And I just pray for them right now, and I pray that you would meet them. You would confirm this morning that you have brought them to this space, this spiritual space, so that you might invade their, their heart. You might bring clarity and truth and understanding, and you might bring power and authority. I pray for anybody in this space that might be um, looking into Christianity and, and, and testing the waters, and I, I just pray... In everything that I said, that what would be very clear is the heart of God for fallen creation. The heart of God to heal, the heart of God to make new, the heart of God to, to renew all things. And I just pray for this congregation just in, in total, Lord. I know that this is a congregation that is having the right conversations. I know that this congregation is very much endeavoring to live in this culture with fidelity towards Christ, with a heart to embody the ethics of the new kingdom. And I, I pray for spiritual vitality in this congregation. I pray for strength in this congregation. I pray for power and authority. I pray for the spirit of the living God to be manifested in the gifts. I pray for prophetic words and promises. I pray that they would know that because you are a shepherd, they lack for nothing. And may their cup overrun at flood. Father, we so love you and we praise you. We just give you this time now. May you be Lord here as we respond to you. I pray these things in your name, Jesus.